Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team. So, a little about our sponsors, Ericsson. As we're all aware, the oil and gas industry is digitizing rapidly. In addition to helping the industry reap the benefits of cost reductions, capture efficiencies for top-line revenue, achieve safety and environmental goals, digitization is enabling better and stronger connectivity. Ericsson provides best-in-class connectivity solutions for the oil and gas industry with its 4G and 5G private networks. Check out their site at www.ericsson.com forward slash oil and gas. I will put this in the notes of each one of the episodes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Energy Workforce of Tomorrow, sponsored by Ericsson. My name is Jason Duff, the IBM North American Oil and Gas Lead. With me today, I have two hosts, Mr. Woodward, Brian Woodward and Mr. Jim Kosis. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Jason. Morning. Hey, thanks for having us. Hey, guys. Hey, Brian. Chase, aren't you up in my other favorite cowboy town of the world? I am indeed. I tried to use some Jenny I on how I would manage myself in Calgary this week at Stampede. And yeah, I tried to keep to some sort of stability, but it all went off all the rocks on about Monday, about three o'clock, actually. Well, I know the listeners can't see your faces, but I know Jim's up there with you as well, and he looks way better than you do. So thank you. His AI managed himself a little better up there. (laughs) Jim, how was the experience at first Stampede, dude? I'm still looking for some cattle and horses, but I am thoroughly enjoying Stampede. It's actually, it's fantastic, Brian, joking apart, Calgary, let's call it a small city, and I'm not being derogative at all, but the connections with the people and what they put on is immense. The whole town is just, yeah, everyone, you know, boots, belt, hat, everyone out connecting, great connections between all the clients, etc., and all the SIs, really, really cool. Awesome. Well, you know, I could talk about rodeo for the rest of my life, but let's maybe we'll circle back to the real topic at hand, right? I've got some plans for some clients of what we're going to do in Houston next. We're going to mix it up. So what have we got on today, Jim? What were you, we're talking about Gen AI today with the IBM gang, right? Yeah, we sure are. So we've got a couple of our experts joining us from our AI capability. We've got Shobeth Varshne and Benoit Damarandan who'll be joining us, giving us a little perspective on IBM's view around what's going on in the space. We certainly hear a lot about it in the press, in the industry, and in talking to neighbors down the street. Good morning, gurus. Good morning, Shobeth, Benoit. Hey, very good morning to you, Jason. A lot of energy here. All right. Howdy. Howdy, Jason. Howdy. Actually... It is a howdy, because you're Texas-based, Shobert, aren't you? Of course I am. I'm the Texas cowboy from That's Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> they should all, the listeners should all know that Shobert and I are Texans from our accents. That's clear. Hey, the best bull riders in the world are from Brazil, so it's an international sport, right? So, How do the Scottish do, Brian? I didn't know you guys bull rided professionally, just amateur. It just I amateur. don't think that's... <laughs> we don't. <laughs> So, guys, you want to do an intro, Shobit, and then you, Benoit, you want to do a personal intro? Sure, I can go first. Hello, listeners, this is Shobit Warshney here. I'm a senior partner and VP in IBM Consulting. One in two IBMers are IBM Consulting. I'm accountable for all of our AI, generative AI, and our IoT business in US, Canada, and Latin America. 
and I get to serve clients across all the various industries. And I go across the gamut of deep learning, machine learning, foundation models to computer vision with IoT, do a lot of work with unstructured content, conversational AI in the contact center, all sorts of applications of AI. I partner with, uh, with Jason and the team to help bring all of that AI capability to clients in the oil and gas industry. Benoit, over to you. Thank you, Shobit. Hello, everyone. Benoit, I'm Darren. I'm a partner in IBM Consulting. I focus on a particular sector. We call it industrial sector, which includes our oil and gas clients, auto, aerospace, electronics clients. I work with Shobit, leaders like him, to apply data analytics and AI solutions to the industry-specific needs our clients have. So it's all about picking the innovation and bringing it to life for the special use cases in our industry. Pretty cool. Welcome, gentlemen. Brian, do you want to kick us off? You had some good connections this morning. Do you seem to have had your Frosties? I have my Frosties every day, Jace. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah. So, guys, you know, this is the second podcast we've done on generative AI in you know, the last month, a month and a half. But it's certainly not a stale topic, right? And I think there's a lot of different perspectives about it. Why don't we just kick it off for our listeners and let maybe Shabot and Benoit talk a little bit about what is different now in the world of generative AI? I mean, we all hear about ChatGBT and, and a lot of you know amusing use cases about it, but you know, what we really want to dive into is how is this capability starting to impact enterprises? So what's different in our world with regards to generative AI? It's a great time to be alive right now, Brian. Just we're at a at such a pivotal moment of what AI can do for each one of us and for the humanity. And used properly, it, ha- it can unlock a ton of potential for us as individuals, as humans, make us more productive, but also as enterprises, unlock a lot of productivity and net new revenue streams. AI is not new. All of us have been handling uh, AI and experiencing it through every interaction we have with our cell phones or any other communication device that we have. We started this journey with having very telling AI exactly what to do. If you think about glorified Excel, I'll tell you advanced analytics, here's the formula, here's the data, go get me an answer. That was all advanced analytics. We then moved to a view to a world where I would want it to make some predictions. So for example, if I need you to predict the price of something and I give you exactly how to get about it, you take those features and you create an output. Then we got to a point where here's, I don't have, I can't find the features to tell you, you go figure it out yourself. I'll give you 10 pictures of cats, 10 pictures of dogs. You figure out what whiskers equals cats. But then if I give you an image of a cat sideways, you're stumped. So we had this Achilles heel of not having enough labeled data to be able to have these AI models get really, really sharp. We're now at that phase with generative AI where it has pre-trained on the world's knowledge. And now it is super easy to go adapt it to a particular domain. So when we interface with clients in the oil and gas industry, we have these massively trained models deployed securely behind the firewalls of these large enterprises, but now I can ask it to do all sorts of things that I couldn't earlier. I can summarize financial documents, I can look at uh, invoices, or I can go create an email as a response, I can go analyze what's happening in a contact center when complaints come in. I have access to all of that, and the threshold of applying AI has drastically plummeted. It takes very little effort, and we are seeing in the deliveries that we're doing up to 70% reduction of the effort to go deploy this AI. There are these back-end processes in organizations, mid-office, back-office, that are very yucky, right? All of those required a lot of AI to understand all the variations of the documents. Now, because the AI is so well-trained, the threshold of applying that has gone down 
So now you unlock all sorts of productivity in the back office and how business gets done in an enterprise. That's why I'm just absolutely excited with the, what we're doing with the clients and great time to be alive. Bilal, can you share a few more examples of what this means for your clients? Yeah, I think, Shobhit, I'll, I'll start with what you talked about, the journey and the evolution of AI, right? What that has done is, in the years past, all of our clients used to have pockets of innovation around the organization where they would experiment and have point POCs. But now with the mainstream emergence of generative AI and its ease of use, at least for the table stakes use cases that you highlighted, that conversation has shifted from an innovation team that sits in the corner of the organization to highest levels, the board, the C-level suite, all of who who are asking to embrace it and who are asking their leadership team, how far along are we? What is our readiness to embrace this capability? And that is translating in every critical function across the value chain, thinking about what is the best use case that can prove this for us and then enable it as a proof point. And the leaders are holding the innovation leaders accountable to say, make sure we have the right blueprint, make sure we are mobilized, make sure we have the talent, make sure we have the right guardrails. So that's how this is truly, in a way, re-energizing our clients, making them think hard about how to apply this across the value chain. Hey guys, a question for you, and I'll put it in terms that I can easily understand. I'll call it Jim's mom's tipping point. So my mother is 98 (laughs) years old and she has no idea what I do. But in the last three months, she's asked me about what's this generative AI thing and why am I hearing so much about it? So there's a long history of machine learning, advanced analytics, natural language processing, all of these things. But, you know, is it a technology shift? Is it, you know, convergence of, you know, more awareness? The use cases are, you know, kind of why now are we seeing so much about this? Absolutely. And congratulations for your mom at 98. And I'm so glad that she's uh, interfacing with the technology of this is going to change so much in our world. <laughs> Absolutely agree. Democratizing of AI has changed the way employees when in their personal lives, and Brian and we were talking about this earlier, because you're exposed to direct raw power of this new generative AI, and you can go create images, you can go create emails, it can help you code, all of those things that percolates into your day-to-day work life as well. And you start to think, hey, if I can do X with this large technology, why can't I do that in my daily work? Your mom, if she needs to go look up a recipe, it's that much easier than having to, in the historically, go look at multiple links, go find recipes, and things of that nature. Now you have all of these different tools that are so well pre-trained that you're less disappointed when it's giving you an answer. Earlier, you had to go dig through a lot of content and figure out an answer. So we have gone from this links and passage retrieval world to now getting to an answer retrieval. I need a spot answer for something. It will do the heavy lifting to get me that answer versus earlier the onus was on me to go look at all that knowledge and then create my own answer from that. There's a lot of people out there, Shobit, just based on that one as well, there is a lot of noise and people and everyone's in Gen AI now, everyone, you know, and usually the people if... Again, go back to probably the Jim's mother's tipping point. They'll understand what Google is. I think some people are now starting to understand what chat GPT is. There's other models coming up. You know, it probably is on us as well, probably through delivery of some of these use cases show, but to really show securely, how do we use this material smartly, as you said, securely as we deliver it and actually start adding value, right? I think that's when things take off, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, Jason, there's quite a bit that has happened in the last six months 
in securely deploying these large language models. Every large vendor, whether it's OpenAI, Azure, AWS, Google, IBM, we have all as a community thought about what happens to your data as an enterprise. How do you securely bring that model into your firewall so that your data, your knowledge, your intellectual property does not leave the premises? That's your gold, and you want to make sure that you're protecting it behind your firewalls. There are a gamut of different ways in which we, are, we go about this. There are some insanely large, absolutely stunning models like GPT-4 from OpenAI. Cloud 2 came out 48 hours back. There are a lot of open source models that are insanely large. Falcon is a beautiful model, does a lot, and it has it can be deployed in enterprises. Then there's this insanely large community on Hugging Face of smaller, medium-sized models that are very purpose-built for a particular topic. So if I need to go pick up a contract in oil and gas, I can go find a model that has been pre-trained and some good soul has open-sourced it and put it in the open domain where I can download, modify, adapt it, and I have the time to value has shrunk quite a bit. In all those different model types, there are multiple techniques that help us bring that securely behind the firewall so you can deploy it. I think the community itself is very focused on taking the next step from there. Once you do deploy the model, how do you create the right safeguards around it so it reflects the values of the enterprise? So we're all we're engaged with about 100 plus clients at this point, helping them with generative AI at scale. A majority of the use cases right now, we're focused more on internal productivity. We're trying to make sure that there's always a human in the loop, so the responses that have been generated, there's somebody who's looking at it, monitoring it, and then you start to build confidence. We just did a CEO study of 3,000 CEOs globally, and we asked them about their point of view on generative AI. Vast majority of them, 50, 60% of them, were very positive about the impact generative AI is going to have on competitive advantage for them. But an equal number were very skeptical because they don't understand how to monitor and how to mitigate the risks that it's bringing. If you look at some of the C-suite quotes, they were very clear that the benefit of deploying generative AI outperforms the risks that it's bringing, and it's their duty to create the right risk mitigation strategies to use this AI as a competitive advantage. And Brian mentioned this earlier as well. It's not a question of if you're deploying generative AI. It's an absolute yep. must. It is happening in your enterprise, you like it or not. You need to figure out the right mechanism to ensure that it reflects the values of the enterprise. Yeah, sure, but it's interesting, and you hit on a great point, I think. And, you know, I think a lot of our clients, especially in this particular industry, are extremely data-rich, right? And obviously, you know, data is, especially if you're in, you know, the exploration side. Yeah, modeling reservoirs, Brian. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or even in the operations side, production side, data is massively important. And a lot of our clients have made huge investments in these data lakes, right? Where they've, you know, amassed and pushed, you know, gobs and gobs of data. But, you know, I think the challenge in the last five, six, seven years until now is how do you actually harness the power of that data? And maybe that is the step change, I think, in what we're talking about. We have the technology now to allow those who have the domain data in their enterprise to start to really get real leverage, right? Brian, if I could weigh in, if you remember a quote our former CEO used to use often, there's no AI without IA. So to your point, if you don't have a robust information architecture that feeds the rich data in a way that is trusted, that is clean, that is maintained to deliver meaningful AI, 
right? If you don't take care of that, then it impacts the effectiveness of how you can use AI. And going back to the study that Shobit is referring to, right? Besides the fact that now it's not trying AI, it is more about starting with AI. One of the clear recognitions that the CEOs pointed out is about having that clean, trusted data that allows AI to be able to truly deliver the value it is. That goldmine of operational data or transactional data, as well as master data about the oil and gas industry, for example, that they're sitting on, that is invaluable to mine and generate and deliver new kinds of insights. So that is pretty much an opportunity to harvest that data as an organization across the board. But no, just a question then to you from the industrial point of view, because from your intro, you look after industrial and support us and clearly show it being, you know, bringing the leaders, etc. in. What are you seeing that's of interest on the use cases, Benoit? Are people just starting? As in, and let's not talk about oil and gas. I think what we should do, Jim Bryan, is get, yeah. you know, let's look at industrial first because, you know, a lot of the stuff we can leverage, I guess, across some of these clients. Benoit, what do you see that's, that's getting traction or is worrying our clients? Because that'd be interesting to the listeners. Absolutely. So as with any other sector, there are varying, varying levels of maturity amongst our clients, Jason. Right, So there are many who have a culture of innovation that are jumping headlong, making sure that they put the right fences in place to manage it in a deliberate manner. Then there are who only experimented with AI in the last few years. And now, thanks to generative AI, AI has become mainstream within the organization. The spread is from some clients who are saying, I want generative AI in everything. So I have certain industries such as auto, where they are saying, I want AI in my products, right, in my vehicles, versus not just internally for operational reasons. Then there are others who are clearly realizing that it is an opportunity to revisit the strategy as a company, and it's bringing them back and reflect on what is our strategy as an organization, what is our readiness, how are we going to go about this with a robust blueprint. So the industrial sector, in a good way, is embracing this. Typically, when we have these kinds of innovations, Jason, the other industries such as financial services tend to be the first movers and weird followers. Yes. But I'm happy to say in our case, because we have this vast richness of different types of data, our clients are absolutely leaning in. The simple use cases they are jumping in are the proven ones in customer experience, in operations efficiency. But very quickly, they are realizing point cases which are unique to our industry, such as supply chain optimization, right? Or helping the product engineering teams in our sector develop better products, right? So those are some of the unique patterns that are coming and getting a lot of attention. But the core use cases, some of which Shobit touched on as examples earlier, those are the accelerants in our sector as well. But yeah, I mean, I would say I've got more requests to address C-level leaders and feed them in helping their board of director presentation than I've had in the last 10 years. It's amazing the amount of energy in our uh, industry on this topic. And the, so if you summarize the area, because Jim, I think what we could do is utilize some of this in oil and gas, right? Because I think there's still a little bit of, you know, what is it, where are we going to go? But what just Benoit said, maybe we can use some of that sort of leverage and show. I think that's what's going to get some traction here, I think. Yeah, I think the next step is kind of getting from that kind of level of excitement that there's something here to, all right, so where do we start? What's the first use case that we go after? You know, I suspect that people want to see success over trying to tackle the most difficult problem, but keen to, to hear maybe from Showbit around what, you know, other folks are doing and going from kind of concept to, all right, you know, let's turn the page and what are we doing tomorrow on this? 
Absolutely. So Jim, we've been working with, like I said, 100 plus clients, and as we have helped them prioritize where to apply generative AI, there are two axes that we have to solve for, two levers you have to think through. One is, do you really need generative AI versus existing traditional AI? As an example, if you're doing forecasting, if you're doing demand planning and things of that nature, the existing traditional AI models are of excellent fit for those use cases, number crunching, things of that nature. You're going to get higher ROI doing that versus bringing in generative AI, which is now starting to do a lot more of the number analysis, but still the traditional models are going to be better. So it's not just running after the shiny object. And the second lever is, what's the cost of a hallucination to you? If you get the incorrect answer and you've exposed that out to an end user, what's the brand reputation at rest there, right? So if you look at those two by two axes, it's very easy to pick a use case and say, where does it align on that? As an example, Benoit mentioned looking at customer care. If I'm trying to analyze what are people calling me about, right? that's an internal facing analytics project. I look at all these audio recordings and understand that this is exactly what people called and here's how Shobhath as an agent was able to fix that problem. right? That has a human in the loop. You're looking at analytics coming out and it's summarizing things. It is a very good example of a use case for generative AI because our prior attempts with NLP, natural language processing techniques, we used to be very, it used to be very noisy. The phone calls are very, very, have a lot going <laughs> on. You have to like decipher exactly what is the root cause of the problem. Generative AI is a great example and it's internal facing human. That'll be at the bottom left corner of that two by two. But if you take a more extreme example and say, I need you to explain me what my healthcare benefits are, right? What's my wheelchair coverage? What's my maternity coverage, right? I need to make sure that it is very precise. I need to actually look at your plan type and figure out what's covered, how much have you spent, family, in-network, out-of-network. There's a whole lot of complexity there to get to the precise answer. And at that point, I think regular traditional AI and deterministic AI is more important than being creative about it. I don't care if you can say that in Taylor Swift lyrics. <laughs> I hope you don't give me that answer of my maternity benefits with Snoop Dogg lyrics, but I just want to make sure that the creativity is dialed down. And if you make it external facing, then the risk is extremely high, right? There are certain words that we don't use as a brand. So that would be on the top right. So looking at some matrix like this has helped our clients pick which are the use cases that are 30, 60, 90 days that we should deploy. And hence, a lot of these have been internal productivity-driven use cases. And as you see value being unlocked, that starts to fund the next wave of, hey, now I need to add generative AI to my product. When somebody is typing something, adding, a, creating a ticket, I can analyze things in real time there. It's a smaller constrained use case. So, and that's where we start evolving. It's funny you say this show, but because what I've seen and experienced is people are, it's an immaturity, or it's a maturity curve. Because I think what we're being asked is someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, hey, I'd love clients calling into my call center to be really, they know it's Jason Duff coming into it. You know, what's he last talked to? Who's he, you know, what's he bought? What can I do with Jenny I? If we took a very standard view and say, well, that's just CRM, right? You could do it. But actually, it was quite interesting of thinking, well, hold on, you could use some of this material. And then someone also asked me, what about getting a proposal out the door? Could we not Gen AI and get some quicker? It's too easy for us, I personally think, and I did it myself of thinking, hold on, that's just my process and mapping it out. Well, hold on, maybe it is. But now if we could use some of the processes in Gen AI, then we can do it. So people are thinking, I think we need to help with the maturity, I think is what you're saying, Shobit, in terms of, whoa, let's not go crazy on this. Let's get back to 
a simple case and grow from it. Right, Brian? Yeah. And Jason, I mean, you know, I think follow-up question, Shoba, to what you said, and maybe I didn't even let him answer you, Jason. Sorry about that, but I do that all the time. He always time, all the time. But I think they're related, right? I think, you know, you mentioned this word hallucination that's being thrown around a lot in terms of how much do you trust the answer that comes out of, you know, the generative AI model that you're using. But if you're using it, like you said, in an internal productivity case or a looking back case to try to model better, you know, behavior or better operational model in the future, and you've got a human in the middle filtering out the noise, then that's a great place to start and you're embedding it. But is the idea is that as you start to gain maturity in the use case and start to mature your models that you can, you know, it may be over the next year or two, start to work the hallucinations out where you can start to minimize how much human filtering you need? No, absolutely. And this is something that I'm very excited about as the AI community. We're doing a lot to ensure there are proper safeguards because now we open it up to understanding how these models work and we expose so many people to it. So we have a lot of crowdsourcing. If you think about how the big giants like OpenAI and Cloud and others are approaching this, we are leveraging the intelligence of the crowd to help us make these better, right? If you look at these large language models, if I tell you here's a novel, The Great Gatsby, and you want to go summarize it, is this summary accurate? No human wants to go in and actually read the whole book and compare and say this, yes, this is accurate, right? So we are lazy. We need better tools like generative AI to go monitor generative AI. So this whole domain of AI Hmm. helping AI has helped humans put their voice and their values inside of these models. Even like every example that we've talked about so far, data is a keyless heel for AI. We're using AI to understand the data better, to cleanse it so that we can make more meaningful predictions out of that data because that was dirty work that we didn't want to do. We wanted to get to the shiny object of AI. Now AI is helping us do that. So they're at every stage where humans are trying to control and manage these models, AI is helping us. With hallucinations specifically, when we do these projects for oil and glass clients, say you're sitting on a whole lot of manuals and you're trying to read through those manuals and tell me how does this particular equipment work. Now, when you're applying a large language model to that, I don't care if that large language model knows Shakespeare lyrics or knows how to code. I'm just hyper-focused on those documents, right? So there are techniques that we use where we reduce the overall set of documents that the knowledge is looking at, we pull out the right snippets that are relevant, and then pass that into a large language model and say, this LLM focus only on these paragraphs and passages that make sense, that are relevant to the question that I answered, and honestly answer, how do I turn this equipment? How do I reset this equipment? And we are deploying this in production for clients. There's a lot of monitoring that we're doing on top. And every answer that we create for coming out of that has lineage back, provenance back to here, the three snippets that I used to create this particular answer. So this is, we call this content grounding. The more you can ground the responses in the content, the higher is the reduction in the hallucination and your keeping it less biased and start kind of making things up as you would if you have a massive model that's just unconstrained. Shoba, can you use this to teach my mother-in-law how to use a remote control for the TV? I thought about I'm this. I'm lucky you, know, this, you just kept this. it to the remote control, Brian. <laughs> We've had this conversation on podcasts before. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I love the use case on, you know, advice, you know, how to use equipment. I mean, I think in our industry, there's a huge void of talent, you know, whole new generation turnover. 
Some of these equipments in these facilities are really old. And, you know, that's a great example on how to really accelerate productivity of new employees in facilities, you know, them not having to know as deeply maybe the, the equipment history and the parameters, but being able to, you know, provide almost like an agent assistant maintenance activities, right? Brian, I would expect all of us to have co-pilots attached to us all the time. And the devices and the tools that we're using would get more intelligent over time. And they'll be augmenting us, like just from an IBM perspective, we have our principles around AI. And one of those big pillars is AI is meant to augment human intelligence, not replace it. And there are lots of workflows in my day-to-day work that we are able to leverage generative AI now to reduce the manual looking up information, things of that nature, so I can focus more on decision-making and, and things like that, right? So I think there's going to be, a, like, if you fast-forward by a year or two years, once these models mature and we get a good mousetrap on how to deploy them securely, I would expect all of our workflows to have a lot of co-pilot-assisted productivity boosts, whether it's our personal life or our enterprise life. Mm-hmm. What's really exciting to me about this is that you know, for the oil and gas industry, it feels like kind of the investments in IT over you know a number of years. This has really the potential to hit that drill site rep, that field service engineer, with being able to help do their job, you know, a little bit easier, a little bit better, a little bit more efficiently. So, Shobeth, I think you've kind of highlighted this coaching capability, this agent assist side of the discussion, but we'd like to maybe have you go a little bit more deeper on this for what it means for the workforce as a whole. So there's kind of the user side of the consumer side of generative AI, but then also the skills that CIOs may need to be looking at in terms of, you know, how does this change the game in terms of what skills are needed to enable this capability? Sure. I can start and Benoit if you can give a more oil and gas flavor to it. In my opinion, English is the new programming language, right? When the threshold to do deploy AI plummets to this point and becomes incredibly easy to deploy, people who are domain experts, who know how upstream, downstream, and those workflows work, those are the people who are going to innovate in the next wave of innovation. Earlier, they were strapped to AI and analytics teams across the organization. Innovation was happening in silos, like Benoit said earlier. Now, we are working with finance processes end-to-end, record to report, or recruiting, or somebody in the supply chain trying to create a ticket and figure out where this truck is. All of those workflows, the person who's doing it will have access to a co-pilot that's helping us deliver that. So the skills are going to be more domain-specific. And since you're being exposed to such incredible AI at your fingertips, you will be in a better position to focus on your domain expertise. The pendulum has been swinging quite a bit. We used to have these big teams of data scientists that would go into organizations and build (laughs) AI, right? It used to be a very plus AI approach. You do some recruiting, plus throw in some AI as a bolt-on. And we have swung the pendulum now to an AI-first approach. It's an AI-plus recruiting process or supply chain and things of that nature. So as the pendulum has swung, there's more co-creation with the business. The business users have access to things. If they have an email, I want to summarize it. There's a contract I got. I want to pull out some key elements from it. Over time, as these are maturing, we are seeing less and less dependence and reliance on data science teams. Now, our users, our domain experts are better enabled. So there's going to be a swing towards talent focused on more domain expertise versus having to hire a lot more data scientists. Benoit, are you seeing something similar in on gas? 
you know, as you were talking, an interesting, what I thought was funny observation came across my attention yesterday. I was talking to some of our global team and they were talking about employees having the new skill definitions. And one of them said, I am a prompt engineer. I'm like, wow, this is a whole new skill people are claiming. Engineer. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they, all they're doing is training the model, but they're calling that a skill. Right. So if you are a CIO, right, and if you are the leader that is training people to be the next generation adopters of this and Shobit said it is fully democratized, right, you need to recognize that these are skills that your employees are going to pick up. You need to manage that in a structured manner so that you are able to enable that fast. And also there is a, if you think about the peak of adoption, all, you know, trial and error with the hype, very quickly, the proven use cases that Shobit pointed out are to be operationalized. So then it is important for you as an organization to put in place the scaffolding COE type structure that allows you to have robust practices like an AI ethics board and all of those things that ensure good disciplined adoption of this by all of your employees, put in place the guidelines so that they embrace that reflects the culture of your organization, right? And reflects the good tools that you want all of them to follow. So it behooves the leader to understand this and see that this hype cycle of exploring all these use cases is going to be pretty short because this is proven itself. Now we have to put in place the lasting capabilities that ensures infusion of this across the enterprise and that you are able to encourage it the way you as an organization want to drive the adoption of AI. As we wrap this all up then, two questions come to me and you know we're going to have young Shobits, Jasons, Jims and Benoys listening to this. I think one of my questions, the first question is, what's our advice to these guys as they go into it? They all want to be, I met someone in the bar last night on Central Street, I'm, at, you know, I'm really keen on Gen AI, I'm starting to work. What's the interest there? I think the other thing, question, and over to you as a second point is, so what for the enterprise? What do we want or what should the enterprise do? Take those first. I'd like the young ones, Benoit, what do we ask the young Benoits now to focus on to make sure that they're going the right direction? I think the single biggest thing is curiosity and willingness to learn. The tools are so much more available than ever before. And the ability to learn these new platforms. So if you think about it, Jason, this whole domain right is in terms of generative ai when it became mainstream is literally six months in terms of the toolkit available but it was also now available in a way every one of these young curious youngsters can go pick up the tool experiment and learn so i would say an open mind and hunger to explore different use cases and truly harvest a vast ecosystem of resources. But I, I assume you're still going to say keep doing your data analytics get a good base on yourself and then use that correct you have to have a first principles understanding of what are the layers of the capabilities that need to come together. You're spot on. But there are a lot more tools that allow you to accelerate your maturity. But you do have to not lose sight of the core principles that allow the AI ladder as we see it. If you don't pay attention to that, you won't be able to get full value. But there are a lot of tools for a youngster to truly kick the tires and get familiar with it. Shobit, thoughts you want to add? I really envy the young Shobits and Benoists. Like, I would give anything to go back to college and have hair. But I would love to. It is, such a, <laughs> it is such a great time to be learning. Like There has never been a lower threshold to learn. If you want to pick up a new skill, you're leveraging generative AI to teach you that new skill. I spent 150 days trying to learn Spanish. I got poquito Spanish. It's terrible at it. 
Then I started to try to have generative AI teach me how to talk in Spanish. And you see a huge shift in how you have access to these tools that are helping you learn. And I think we owe it to ourselves and to the next generation to make sure that we are investing our time and energy in picking up the right skills. There's not going to be a future where you are an artist, you're somebody who creates a fashion or art or like software, that your life is going to be drastically different in a few years with AI. I would focus everything on an AI plus approach. If you are, if you are a musician, learn how to leverage AI early on. People who are leveraging AI will outcompete others who are not. So at this point in college, in school, or in early professional, focus a lot more on picking up those AI skills as a user. You do not have to go and create those deep learning models yourself. There is creating AI and there's applying AI. Focus on applying AI in your particular domain. There are not those many opportunities that will be out there for junior software developers going forward. That productivity boost we're getting with generative AI is gonna crush that particular domain. The focus will be on domain expertise on how to apply the generative AI. And then, sure, but the final question for me, I think, wrapping up, so that point on what should enterprise do? We've got a number of companies, clearly some of the multinationals started, some of the nationals are smaller, are looking, thinking, what should I do? What would your sense be, Shob Benoy? What's your, how do you kick this off? Do they need to be following? Do they need to be taking a lead on this? You know, how do they start all this? Oh, we've lost. Go ahead, Shob. I don't know if you went away. I was waiting for you. Ah, there he is. He was thinking about the answer. There you go. He was running his Gen AI tool behind to make sure he no, answers I was correctly. Saying, call one eight hundred IBM. Call us. <laughs> but I mean, joking apart, show. But that's what they need to be yes. doing. We need to be really understanding this, right, and getting ahead of the game rather than. There's some problems with our industry and even industrial. There's sometimes technology, as you said it before, Benoit, with a bit laggards. FS goes ahead and then we work out. We can't do this here. This is a great chance, chance to jump, correct? And I think, Jason, it's the board of directors. It's the C-suite that is very focused on this, right? And they have to get ahead of this. As an enterprise, what are the values? How do you do ethical, responsible AI? How do you scale it up? How does work change inside of an organization? Those are questions that have to be addressed today on actions that clients are taking today are they're trying to protect their data. They're trying to ensure that they're generating enough data. You have trucks and you have machines all over oil and gas. That data exhaust that's coming out of those IoT signals, that is going to be your competitive advantage going forward, right? There's a lot of focus on how can you create that moat around you. So it's just a great time for us to be engaging with the C-suites in oil and gas. And thanks for the great partnership in bringing AI to your clients. Good news. Jim, any last comments while we wrap this one up? No, I think the guys have covered it. Well done. Guys, Shobit, Benoit, thank you very, very much for doing this. I think we should do this with a couple of clients, actually, Shobit. I'd love to do this and get a couple of clients on and take it one step further. I've got a couple of ideas. But Shobit, Benoit, great. And thank you for helping Jim's mother work out what Jenny I is. We should use that. That's the new model, Jim. If she understands it, we're off. <laughs> Indeed. Love it. Love it. Thanks, yeah, guys. Jackson, looking forward to it. Really exciting. Yeah, thank you so much. Nice one. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.